Hello, my name is Thomas Berezovsky, and I'm the director of Two Journeys Ministry. If you find Andy Davis's content helpful and you want to help us disseminate free gospel-centered content, please prayerfully consider donating to Two Journeys. All end of your gifts will be matched up to $20,000. Please visit the donate page on twojourneys.org for more information on how to donate. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past, and my name is Andy Davis. The purpose of this podcast is to inspire listeners to courageous sacrificial actions to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of our brothers and sisters in the past. So in our overview of church history, we have reached now the time of the Reformation. The Reformation arose from a single monk desperately seeking an answer to the central question every sinner should ask when faced with a holy God. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer trembled as he asked this question of Paul and Silas just moments after they had rescued him from suicide and an eternity in hell. Acts 16.30. There is no more vital issue that presses on us in this life. For Jesus said plainly, what would it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what should a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew 16.26. Thus, according to Jesus, there is no question more vital than the one asked by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? By the end of the 15th century, the Roman Catholic Church was so steeped in the world and so corrupt in its theology that it had no clear answer to the single greatest question, what must I do to be saved? The semi-Pelagianism that infected its theology made salvation a joint effort between the grace of God and the diligent efforts of man. But the holiness of God is so pure and the heart of man is so corrupt that there could be no assurance of salvation for any honest person who is continually aware of his true condition and who feels that his salvation ultimately depends on himself. Martin Luther was such a man. He was terrified of death and of the hell that would follow. Caught in an electrical storm one hot afternoon, he cried out to the patron saint of minors. His father was a minor. Help me, Saint Anne. I shall become a monk. This cry naturally came from the mix of superstition and bad theology that any subject of the medieval Roman Catholic Church received. He quit his university studies, greatly angering his father, and in July of 1505, he entered an Augustinian cloister in Erfurt, modern-day Germany, in the single-minded pursuit of individual salvation. He did everything he was commanded to do and more. He later said, if anyone could have been saved by monkery, it would have been me. He fasted so much that his health was permanently impaired. He lay shivering on the stone floor, the cold stone floor of his cell without a blanket in the winter, praying all night. He continually confessed his sins, even the slightest ones, to his confessor, 
the priest, Father Johann Staupitz. At one point, Staupitz cried out, Martin, you're making it too hard. All you have to do is love God. Luther cried back from the depths of his agonized soul, Love God? I hate him. Staupitz realized that this ardent young monk would soon crack under this pressure. So he busied him in the study of the scriptures and theology. Eventually, his studies led him to the Psalms, where he came across Psalm 22. Verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he knew from the depth of his tormented soul what it felt like for him as a sinner to make such a cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was like experiencing hell on earth. But he also knew one other man who had made such a cry, our Lord Jesus Christ, when dying on the cross. Luther knew why he himself would say it. But Christ was sinless, perfect. Why would he make such a cry? Except that he was doing so in solidarity with us sinners, in solidarity with us as our Savior. Well, this play, placed a seed of hope in his heart concerning his own salvation. But it wouldn't be until Luther's studies brought him to the book of Romans, and specifically chapter 1 and verse 17, that the light of salvation finally flooded in and drove away the darkness of his terrors. The full text of Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is from faith for faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther said he diligently beat upon the apostle Paul to try to understand the phrase, the righteousness of God, in that verse. Ordinarily, that concept would do nothing but terrify a sinner like Luther. The righteousness of God. It was like the righteousness of God that would justly condemn him to eternity in hell. But in this particular text, the phrase was in the service of the gospel and salvation and life. These are joyful terms, not terrifying. Gospel means good news. Salvation is what he desperately sought, the direct opposite of the condemnation to hell that terrified his soul. So therefore, the righteousness of God must be that righteousness by which God saves sinners. And this comes only by faith. Faith in Christ, the Savior of the world. Luther's joy knew no bounds. He later wrote, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through the open gates. As Luther continued to understand the phrase, the righteousness of God, as that righteousness by which God saves sinners, he saw clearly that the rest of Paul's epistle to the Romans and especially to the Galatians, he saw clearly that justification the full forgiveness of sins came by faith alone, apart from works. This was the true gospel of Jesus Christ that had been covered over for centuries by the Roman Catholic system of self-salvation 
through the sacraments of the church. The basic ingredients of the Protestant Reformation are all here in this testimony. Historian Bruce Shelley excellent, excellently summarizes the Reformation into four questions and four movements. It is the clearest, simple summary of this era that I have ever found. He does an excellent job. Here are the four questions. First, how is a person saved? Secondly, where does religious authority lie? Thirdly, what is the church? And fourth, what is the essence of Christian living? However, I believe that Luther and the Reformers would agree that these are not equally important. The first, individual salvation, is immeasurably more important than the other three, though the other three do connect with individual salvation. They are all wrapped together. For the quest of an individual sinner to answer the question, what must I do to be saved, in the end has to be answered individually. For each of us will stand alone before the judgment seat of Almighty God. And therefore the question of religious authority comes logically next. The Protestant reformers taught that the scriptures alone must be the ultimate source of religious authority. Therefore, Paul's question in Romans 4.3, what does the scripture say, must immediately follow the greater question, what must I do to be saved? And the third and fourth questions come immediately on the heels of the first two. For the Protestants came to understand salvation in stages, justification followed by sanctification followed by glorification. Justification is God's instantaneous imputation of Christ's righteousness to a sinner by faith and his just declaration of the righteousness of that sinner based on this gift of Christ's righteousness, this imputation. Sanctification is the gradual process of a justified sinner to greater and greater holiness in the pattern of Christ by a cooperation between the now born-again sinner and the indwelling Holy Spirit. This process must be lived out in the context of a healthy church and is the essence of a holy Christian life. These are the third and fourth questions. This process is imperfect in this life, hence the continual need for the ministry of the Word by a healthy local church. But at death, glorification will complete our salvation, making sinners perfectly conformed to Christ and fit for heaven. The four Protestant movements that Shelley listed all made their own vital contributions to these four central questions. The four movements were the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, the Reformed, and the Church of England. Now, I cannot hope to do justice to these contributions, to these four massive movements in this brief summary or overview, nor is that even my purpose here. Again, as I've said many times, heaven will be the place and the eternal time to learn the truth about each one to the glory of God. But let me give some brief words here to give you a, a, a flavor or a sense of these four great movements. First, the Lutherans. Martin Luther staunchly defended his central doctrine of justification by faith alone his entire life. In so doing, he cleared away the confusion of the semi-Pelagian system of Roman Catholic self-salvation through the sacraments 
he ardently argued for the centrality of the Word of God as the sole final authority of all spiritual questions. Part of this was the essential individualism of salvation, a solitary, responsible soul seeking salvation directly from God by the words of a book, the Bible. But Luther was not ready to foresee a society in which the church and state were entirely separate. When in 1525 the peasants, inflamed with the freedom from papal authority that Luther had displayed, sought to extend it to the economic realm by rebelling against their feudal lords, Luther urged the lords to crush the peasants with complete brutality. The Lutheran vision of society maintained a strong state-sponsored church. After Luther's death, the Peace of Augsburg, 1555, gave each German prince the right to determine for his subjects what his religion would be, either Protestant or Catholic. Beyond this, Martin Luther's final years gave a sad legacy of an imperfect man whose virulent anti-Semitic writings are impossible for a Christian to defend. The Anabaptists, the second movement. On January 21, 1525, Conrad Grable baptized a former priest, George Blaurock, in a private residence in Zurich, Switzerland. This radical step was an essential part of what came to be known as the Radical Reformation. The word radical is derived from the Latin word radix, meaning root. It was part of the humanistic quest for true knowledge going back to the actual sources of truth. That was the the revolution of humanism and the ultimate um, capstone of scholasticism that we talked about last time. It was part of the humanistic quest for true knowledge that sought to go back to the original sources of truth and for the church this source of truth was the New Testament. In 1515 the great humanist scholar Erasmus had given the Church of Europe a gift when he assembled an annotated Greek New Testament from the Greek manuscripts that had been carried by Eastern Orthodox priests fleeing from the Turks after the fall of Constantinople in the year 1453. In 1519, as Martin Luther was beginning to defend his doctrine before the Roman Catholic authorities, a Swiss priest in Zurich named Ulrich Zwingli, born in the year 1484, died in the year 1531, he began a reformation every bit as powerful in Switzerland by simply preaching through the Greek New Testament, line by line. Grable and Blaurock and others like them began to take to heart Zwingli's emphasis on stripping away everything from church life not found in the simple, clear reading of the New Testament. That led these people to questioning the validity of infant baptism, since they could not find it anywhere in the New Testament. Ultimately, this entire approach resulted in a radical vision of the church as, number one, comprised only of believers in Christ, and number two, totally separate from the power of the state. Though these views are clearly in line with the New Testament teachings, and though their vision has led to voluntary religion separate from the coercive power of the state all over the world, even in countries dominated by the Roman Catholic Church, they were far too radical for almost everyone, Protestant and Catholic alike, to accept in the 16th century. 
they came to be called Anabaptists, literally rebaptizers, and were persecuted from pillar to post by almost everyone. But these two convictions concerning the church were the indispensable contribution of the Baptists to church history. The third great movement uh, that Bruce Shelley lists is the Reformed movement. The central figure in this aspect of the Protestant Reformation was John Calvin, born in the year 1509, died in the year 1564. He was born in Noyon, France, and was training to be a lawyer until his father died. Then he changed his career track and studied in Paris to become a classical humanist scholar. Sometime in those years, however, the sovereign grace of God intervened, soundly converted John Calvin, and called him to his service. Where Luther's central theme was justification by faith alone, John Calvin's was the sovereignty of God over all of life. Calvin's main gift was his ability to systematize theology and to write in exquisitely clear prose. His Institutes of the Christian Religion, a summary of Christian doctrine, grew year by year from a, a pre brief pamphlet in the year 1536 to its final immense scope in the year 1564. Along with that ongoing life work, Calvin systematically went through the Bible in his sermons day after day, week after week, year after year, line by line, verse by verse. And he published commentaries on these texts that were characterized by what he called lucid brevity, clarity and brief language. By the time he died, he had written commentaries on 48 of the 66 books of the Bible. This combination of what I call the forest and the trees, the big picture, the forest, of systematic theology, and the trees, the details, of line after line of Scripture, give a basic methodology for all Christians that followed him to draw essential spiritual answers for their salvation in their Christian lives from the true source, the Bible. Above all, however, was his clear vision of a sovereign God whose benevolent will directed all the details of life on earth. The life context of Calvin's work was the city of Geneva in Switzerland, in which Calvin established what John Knox called the most perfect school of Christ that has existed since the days of the apostles. John Knox himself was a Scottish reformer who took Calvinist ideals to Scotland, as did reformers from England and the Netherlands take those same concepts to their countries as well. It is almost impossible to determine accurately the legacy of John Calvin on the subsequent history of the world, but that in part is what heaven is for. I believe that the heavenly review of events connected with the Reformation will vindicate Calvin's high view of the absolute sovereignty of God over all matters great and small. One significant event from his life will be fascinating for us to see when we get to heaven. In the year 1536, the young Calvin was fleeing France and trying to find a quiet place to settle down and pursue his lifetime dream of undisturbed academic pursuits. He chose Strasbourg for that quiet place. But as he was traveling there, a war was going on between Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and King Francis I of France. As we've seen, these kinds of wars between the kings in European Christendom were common. But this one had a profound effect on Calvin's subsequent life. 
for it glutted the most direct road to Strasbourg with troops. So Calvin took a detour through Geneva, expecting to spend only one night there. But a passionate reformer named William Farrell, who was seeking to transform that city by the word of God, had heard that the famous author of the Institutes was in the city for the night. William Farrell found Calvin and begged him to stay and join his reform work there in Geneva. Calvin refused, stating his intention to pursue his quiet studies in Strasbourg. Farrell, filled with a fiery zeal, called down the curse of God on Calvin's selfish desires for a quiet, secluded life of academic glory. That speech filled Calvin with fear, and he stayed in Geneva, what would become the center of his life work. How many such God-ordained collateral effects of wars will be revealed in the heavenly review? The sovereignty of God even orchestrates later forgotten wars to position specific pastors and church leaders for God's wise purposes. The fourth movement that Shelley mentions is the Church of England. This final Protestant movement was born more out of politics than the other three. The root cause was the inability of King Henry VIII and his wife Catherine to sire a male heir to which Henry could bequeath his crown. Henry considered the failure of their, of their union as husband and wife to be a direct curse from Almighty God. In 1527, Henry had sought a special dispensation from Pope Clement VII to marry Catherine, his deceased brother's wife. It had been granted, but no male, male heir had issued from their union, only a daughter, Mary, who later ascended the throne and slaughtered Protestants, earning her the name Bloody Mary. Henry feared the instability that a female heir would produce in England, so he sought another dispensation from the Pope to call his marriage to Catherine annulled and to free him up to marry Anne Boleyn. When the Pope refused, Henry broke with the Roman Catholic Church and orchestrated the Parliament to have him named the supreme head of the Church of England. Since Henry hated what he considered the Lutheran heresy, heresy he wanted no other changes in church life. Effectively, Henry wanted the medieval Roman Catholic Church with himself as his own pope. Since he was secular head of state, this was civil religion. The same pattern was followed by his other daughter, Elizabeth, when she ascended to the throne in 1558, ruling until 1603. Elizabeth carved out a middle way between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, fully satisfying neither one. But most English subjects were delighted with this moderate path and with the peace that it produced in England. A powerful exception, of course, to this were the Puritans, so-called because they sought to purify the Church of England from Roman Catholic ways. Whereas the Lutheran emphasis had been on justification by faith alone, and the Anabaptists had concentrated on the believer's church, and the Reformed heritage exalted the sovereign majesty of Almighty God, the central contribution of the Puritans was a detailed understanding of sanctification, the life of holiness that follows justification by faith alone. The Puritan pastors wrote hundreds of clearly written, scripturally saturated, and doctrinally rich books on the Christian life. 
they worked out what Leland Riken has called reformed monasticism, whereas the medieval Roman Catholic Church had taught that there were two ways of life, the lower life of the ordinary Christian and the higher life of the, of the monastery, the Puritans built on Luther's clear teaching of the priesthood of all believers to elevate the godliness of an ordinary Christian life lived as a farmer or a merchant or a housewife or a magistrate or a pastor. The Puritans sought to live out this purity in daily life in everything they did, but especially to see biblical purity in their worship and ministry of the word. The beautiful balance between Luther's justification by faith alone, apart from works, and the Puritans' sanctification through diligent application of the Word of God and a cooperative effort between the Christian and the Holy Spirit, I believe is the healthiest way to understand the Christian life. So as we've looked at the Reformation today, it's so incredibly encouraging to see how the grace of God worked through these four movements to bring us what we have today which is a clear understanding of the gospel. And as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that there is nothing new under the sun. Whatever it is you're going through, there are Christians who have come before you, who have dealt with similar struggles, and through the power of Christ have overcome them, and you will as well. We also know from Scripture that God went ahead of them and prepared good works for them to do in their own generation, and they did them for the glory of God. In the same way, God has gone ahead of you and prepared good works for you to do for His glory. So go do them by the same power of the Spirit that was in them. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.